Hey, what's up everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilczek. This week, I'm talking with Dr. Vanessa Yafola from St. Mary's University about her research on financial crime and money laundering. Uh, this is episode 23 of Untenured Tracks. on uh, a study of real estate agents and their engagement with anti-money laundering legislation. I work on money laundering and terrorist financing and this current project looks at how people who are responsible for reporting suspicious financial transactions uh, actually use the law, how do they engage with it, what kinds of questions do they ask clients, what do they think is suspicious. do they like what they have to do with the law? Like, uh, do they, you know, what do they really think about the value of what they're doing? Uh, and that's been pretty interesting so far. How did you get into this idea? <laughs> How did this start? Like, this you had me at real estate agents, to be honest. <laughs> like, the, everything uh, else that came after is is just icing. Like, terrorist busting <laughs> real estate agents. I I need to know how you got into this. Okay. Um, so way, way back in the late 90s, when I was a, an undergrad paying for my tuition, uh, I was working as a bank teller, uh, pretty much full time. And I, um, I got interested in the research side of criminology by doing a, like an independent study on the governance of security in retail banking. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been robbed at work. Um, and part of my job also was fraud prevention, which is not a thing that you think intuitively of, uh, as somebody who's just starting out in banking. But of Mm -hmm. course it's very obvious if you think about it, you know, critically for two seconds, which I obviously had not done. (laughs) And so, um, I, I was a criminology major and ethics society and law major at the university of Toronto. And I thought I was going to go to law school, but then I discovered or rediscovered that I loved research. And I did this independent study on how um, space and um, how uh, like human and machine controls work to secure the branch. So how the branch becomes a space of securitization. And then right after that, uh, I was still working and, um, well, 9-11 happened and right immediately after 9-11, there was all this change around anti-money laundering legislation and counter-terrorist financing uh, practice sort of came into anti-money laundering legislation in Canada and also in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from there, I started to get really curious about my job. I was like, you know, I'm 20 years old and 21 years old. I don't really know much about money laundering or terrorist financing. Like, I don't know that I would know how to detect it. Like, how do people in my position, in a scholarly way, how do people in my position make decisions about who they think is suspicious? Like, how do we know what's suspicious on what grounds? How does this work? And so that led me eventually to my dissertation, which sort of took a political economic approach to the uh, study of um, Canadian anti-money laundering practice. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I worked on banking, so I looked at how the law was enacted and then how it was implemented into into banking and then how it's been used within banks, both sort of on the back end and how it's used at the at the teller line. So if you go in to talk to somebody to deposit money, how they process your transaction, both from like a get the money to the account and deposit it standpoint, but also is this guy trustworthy? Should we let Andy deposit ten thousand dollars? You shouldn't have not. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, listeners, don't trust me with your money. So is it like uh I imagine it would be similar to like profiling work. Um, you you'd think it is, but it's it's not profiling in the sort of way that you might think about profiling in terms of like mine hunter or I was, I was thinking more of just like um so in like the new Jim Crow Michelle Alexander talks about all of the like the laundry list of of things that cops claim are like efficient profiling tools and then once you list them all out they're goofy and contradictory and like don't make a lot of sense. And so yeah. I, I kind of wonder if it's is it like that same thing. Like, I'm just suspicious of this guy because he's wearing dark sunglasses. <laughs> That's literally something someone has said to me. So there's they're told a couple of things. Um, one is that there's a set of institutional documents and some institutional knowledge that they have to know. So what the law says specifically about what needs to be reported and when. There are some non-negotiables that just have to happen. Mm-hmm. Then there are things that have developed internally from banking best practice. Um, things that have to do with knowing your customer. So there's a whole series of principles around knowing your customer, what it means to know your customer, how you develop knowledge of a customer, both in an intimate and everyday kind of way for the regulars that come, you know, your old people, your business owners. Um, and then for the people who come to you either that are from your branch that you don't see regularly or people who are coming from elsewhere. And there are practices around how to get to know that person. The law says that you're supposed to look at suspicious transactions and not necessarily suspicious people. But in the course of doing their work, the on the ground knowledge that you develop as a bank employee tends to kind of fold in and incorporate other shall we say, red flags or signifiers of suspicion that are more like the sunglasses example that you gave or this guy is wearing a hoodie. Why doesn't he want to see, like, show his face on camera? That was um, the other example I was going to use because, like, the cops that I work with here and, and of course, law enforcement all over, like, rage against hoodies. That's, that's like, the, that's the cop rage against the machine cover ban is, like, rage against hoodies. <laughs> it's a horrible joke, but I've had a bad day, so you guys are going to have to deal with it. <laughs> there's um there's actually a, a bunch of really interesting kinds of um uh, kinds of examples of things that are idiosyncratically suspicious that came out in the data that i thought were really fascinating and sort of illuminating about how people who are private citizens that are required to do policing on behalf of the state because really bank tellers and real estate agents and Uh, Other people in this context are what we would consider third-party police in the academic literature. Mm -hmm. Um, The kinds of things that they cotton on to is suspicious based on sort of their experience and their colleagues' experience and the bank's best practices. Um, One of them was – I went to this branch, and everybody kept talking to me about – this woman who would come in and she was young and she was hot and she had a Louis Vuitton purse and she drove a nice car and she always came in with cash 
and she had a black boyfriend and we think she's a stripper. And my inner, you know, my inner social scientist was just sort of like overjoyed. And my inner citizen was like, this is terrible. Um, Because, you know, those are all very specific kinds of idiosyncratic things to consider as suspicious. I mean, you know, you've got a young woman um, she's, she's beautiful. Apparently I, I've never seen her, but I take them at their face value. Um, so pretty suspicious. Um, having a nice car is suspicious. Having a black boyfriend is extremely problematic as a person in this context, but that would be suspicious. Um, and even from a sort of a banking perspective, if you're thinking about what's suspicious with respect to money, if I'm depositing cash into my account, you have no idea whether I intend to pay my taxes or not. Like you can't say that that's suspicious when you see me, unless I say to you, Hey, look at this. I've got five K let's hide it from the government. Ha ha. There's no way Wink. to make that kind of claim. <laughs> yeah. So like those kinds of things were really illuminating to me because it tells me a lot about what might be happening sort of on the back end and what kinds of things might be getting communicated to, um, you know, government bodies around suspicion. I, I mean, I was racially profiled in one of my interviews, which I thought was quite revealing about how people might approach actual customers. So can can you tell us about that, if you don't mind? Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm curious. Absolutely. I, I was asking a question about how you or how the person would deal with um, sending a wire payment, mm-hmm. um, you know, how they felt about sending a wire payment to somewhere else in Canada versus to the United States, um, how they would feel about a particular country in Europe. And the example I usually give is um, England, specifically London, um, or to the Middle East. And when I said, when I made reference to the Middle East, the uh, interviewee, the participant kind of paused and looked at me and said sort of cautiously, where are you from? And I smiled and, you know, Andy, you can see me, but no one else can. Um, And I'll describe myself if I may. I sort of have like a medium tone, golden olive skin tone, and I have like brown hair and brown eyes. I, I look very generically ethnic. Like I can fit into a whole bunch of different kinds of cultural contexts and blend seamlessly until I start speaking, obviously. Um, And so I I didn't want to give in. And so I just sort of smiled and said, oh, I'm from Toronto, which you can hear from my accent means that I was born and raised here. Like that's how Torontonians say where they're from. And she shakes her head and she says to me, no, 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 no. I mean, where are you really from? And I said, oh, well, um, you know, my family is Italian. And she kind of heaves this sigh and she says to me, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't want to insult you. I couldn't tell. You had such dark hair. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and so I just kind of like nodded and made sure the recorder was going. And um, I... I listened to her then tell me about her suspicions about, you know, sending money to the Middle East and those terrorist countries, which included a whole bunch of countries, not in the Middle East, but associated with, um, I mean, really not even just Islam, but like dark skin tones. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a really illuminating part of that research project. Um, 
I just I found that particular part fascinating because nowhere in any document that I read, nowhere in any policy or legal piece did anybody ever say, um, you know, be suspicious of Muslim people, be suspicious of people from the Middle East, be suspicious of people based on their, you know, phenotypical appearance. And lo and behold, I was being asked this question. And I mean, if you're worried about asking this of me in an interview where I'm not transacting with the cash, but, you know, the Middle East has come up. How do you feel about people who actually want to conduct that transaction? Yeah. And uh, not to like, I don't know, I, I thought of this when, as you're telling the story and to like stereotype Canadians. I like that she apologized for her racism, but like didn't really apologize for her racism. Like, sorry, I'm being racist. Like, I'm so sorry I almost offended you with my racism, but, like, not, like, apologizing for, like, being racist. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? But, like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Person. You're a white person. You're okay. I can be racist with you. Yeah, like, a big sigh of relief. Like, oh, whew. <laughs> it's safe now. We can... Right? And, you know, as a researcher, like, I mean, that's super fascinating data to me, yeah. right? That oh, That yeah. is a great encounter to collect, but... As a human being, you know, you think to yourself, like, what is this like for other people who are of, you know, a non-white ethnic origin and have to encounter people like this when they want to do their financial transactions? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had a a Muslim bank manager uh, say to me, you know, that that in her opinion, there had been an increase in racial profiling post 9-11 of people in her community, which, I mean, I fully would buy. And uh, she felt that they were losing business in her branch because they they were leaving the customers. They were going to alternative financial institutions where they could conduct their business in peace, which mm-hmm. power to them. Vote with your wallet. Yeah. Um, so how did you get on the real estate agent part of it? Like, what was it about them that, that drew you in? Um, a couple of things. I'm sure... Uh, you and maybe one other of your listeners is as nerdy about real estate as I am and um, have seen the news coverage about, you know, the housing crisis in Vancouver and the expected impact of money laundering on the cost of housing. And we're seeing, you know, the use of or we're seeing rather suspected use of um, real estate as a vehicle for laundering money or for parking money that's been laundered. And so, Knowing what I knew or what I had come to learn about bank tellers and, you know, understanding their sort of social location or the rather the social location of the bank itself in late capitalism with respect to sort of commerce and, you know, it's necessity for basically every aspect of life. You know, you can't do anything without a bank account. I wondered how people who were facilitating the single biggest purchase that anyone would ever make in their life generally speaking, for the majority of us, um, how they would engage with the law and what their perspectives would be. Um, And that's been interesting. The research is ongoing, but one of the things that I'm finding is that in the Canadian context, at least, I can't speak for anywhere else, but I'm not really utterly convinced of the value of having real estate agents engage with the law in this way. And I'll tell you why. I think as difficult as it is for bank employees to truly know the origin of cash that's come in or the end use of what um, that cash will be, at least financial institutions have like 
algorithms we can and we can trouble those algorithms right but they have yeah. processes in place that let them improve the degree of certainty with which they're making these determinations of suspicion right mm-hmm. if you're a bank teller you submit the report it goes internal it gets investigated and then it gets carried on to fintrack canada's anti-money laundering um control center and so there's a sort of larger internal apparatus and some of that's because canada's financial institutions are largely huge and span the entire nation um bank employees are uniquely positioned in that way and banks are uniquely positioned in that way if you're a real estate broker and someone comes to you and says oh my parents gifted me this check for thirty thousand you kind of have to take them on face value. You don't have the same kind of capacity to investigate. You don't have the same ability to know with any degree of certainty what you're doing with respect to the transaction, whether it's truly suspicious for terrorist financing, if it's indicative of money laundering. I mean, unless someone comes to you and, you know, their last name is, I don't know, Carleone, like, you're not going to know. I wasn't I mean, sure where you were going. I was really worried for a second. No. <laughs> like, in an alternate reality, right? In a fictional like, world. Like, if someone comes to you and is like, oh, okay, this is, who's who's your dad? Oh, I see. Okay. Um, all right, Fredo. I think we're going to report the transaction. <laughs> I mean, unless yeah. you have that degree of certainty. As a real estate agent, it's very difficult to make those kinds of reports. And so I think that a lot of expectation is placed onto people who aren't correctly positioned in society through no fault of their own, mind you, right? But the expectation doesn't match the reality of the job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I also, like, I I mean, I don't have the best opinion of banks in general. And so I kind of wonder, like, this is interesting because you're asking, like, Lay people. Sketchy (laughs) uh, institutions, I I think at best, who we know historically have engaged in all kinds of of fraud and and whatever else to, like, stop other people from doing it. (laughs) And and Yeah, I I mean, I agree with you. I think, and there are a whole bunch of reasons why, you know, historically this hasn't really worked. Um, Banks in Canada are on board fundamentally with this, um, because they are using it as a way to position themselves as sort of like part of the whole, um, you know, a safe place to invest, um, like a, a safe and stable institution that you would want to pick, right? That, you know, Canada is very safe and we have a stable economy. So we're best in class or we're industry leaders with respect to money laundering, um, the banks, I mean, <laughs> that way. <laughs> and, um, and so, they're using that as sort of like like capital in the marketplace. Uh-huh. Now, historically, banks have been heavily resistant to um, detecting money laundering and terrorist financing and tax evasion and all of these kinds of activities um, because it turns out that reporting your customers goes against the entire point of a bank, which is to amass as much cash as possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And for the real estate agents who are on commission, <laughs> like it, it's like asking a high school kid making minimum wage, like don't sell to your friends, right? Exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. Who, of, like, of course, I'm gonna. I, I'm 21 years old. I'm a college junior. 
Of course I'm going to sell to my friends. Who cares? Of course I'm going to look the other way and let them in. Like, yes. why do I care? Like, why yes. is, like, the stereotypical, like, super slick, like, real estate guy <laughs> who has, like, a customized license plate about selling houses, like, why is he going to be like, oh, no, no, this is unethical? Like, I mean, half I mean, the houses I, you I, sold are probably unethical. I mean, <laughs> and, and I mean, this assumes, of course, that they would actually have knowledge of something being unethical, a reason to suspect something is being unethical. Yeah. The, the majority of people I've spoken to, I can't actually think of anyone in particular who's ever said, I totally thought that was suspicious and didn't report. Everyone I've spoken to has said things like, well, it's kind of hard for me to know. Like, you know, you get to know your clients and some of them you take around for quite a long time and you get to know them over a period of time and you can gauge them. But, you know, at the end of the day, if someone says to me, my grandpa gave me this cash, I mean, am I going to call them a liar? <laughs> course not because you're on commission right you're on commission and i mean like you know to come back to the bank employees i was i was a 19 year old bank teller when i started in 1999 i mean like let's let's be honest here 19 year old vanessa knew very little about the world i don't care what she would say about that (laughs) statement now but i mean you know i was I was in, I had, I was at the end of my first year of university and, you know, what were my concerns? My concerns were paying my tuition, paying for my 1989 Chevy Blazer, um, you know, like probably, I hate to admit this, but probably guys and having fun with my friends and like, scandalous. I don't know if we can handle this on this show. Right. Like, and and maybe, maybe my readings, like somewhere in there, right? Like maybe I was also doing my schoolwork. I, I couldn't tell you other than what I was specifically told by the financial institution for which I worked. And I was the kind of person who actually read the newspaper in the morning, like how I would have detected terrorist financing or money laundering. And I remember an instance where a supervisor of mine said to me, um, Oh, Vanessa, you know, you have to report this transaction because there's only a limit to which you're allowed to act independently as a bank teller. And then over and above that limit, you have to get signing off on. Yeah. So someone else with more experience has to approve your transaction. So the person who's approving my transaction said, well, I know it's the subway sandwich guy whose shop is across the street and he comes all the time, but like he never comes in with $8,000. And I was like, well, it was Canada day long weekend. Like I Mm -hmm. see why he might have had a bunch of extra money. Um, she was like, no, 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 no. Like that's suspicious. And I couldn't quite figure out what was suspicious about it, which tells me two things are happening here. One, again, I don't think I knew what was suspicious at all. (laughs) Um, and two, my superior probably didn't know what was suspicious at all either. And was more importantly doing what we call defensive reporting. Mm -hmm. So reporting people to cover, you know, your own ass. Is that okay to say? Yeah. Oh, No, listen, please listen to the episodes, that, the two-part that just came out with Sarah Daly. Um, there's way worse language on there. Okay, good. <laughs> so um, shout out to my good friend, Sarah Daly. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for paving the way, Sarah. Um, like, 
Oh. People, like, you know, people who are just reporting stuff to, you know, cover their own asses so that they don't, you know, run the risk of getting fired for not complying with their employment obligations. They're worried that they might go to jail if they do things wrong. These are all concerns that, that came out with respect to reporting money laundering and terrorist financing and why people did it. And so... You know, I think about myself at that age and I think I didn't know anything like what is the fitness of someone like that to report now I know banks have to do it mm-hmm. and their employees have to do it because that's a part of our legislation right that's that's the law but certainly I'm not convinced of the effectiveness of this system I mean not and it's not an indictment of Canada specifically but I think you know, broadly speaking, I'm not convinced that it's able to catch what we wanted to catch anywhere. Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious, have you heard of instances where like banks failed to report and it was a sketchy transaction or a problematic transaction and, and like the bank ends up getting in trouble for some reason for not reporting it? Like, do you know any instances where that happened? Yeah, there are. Um, but those instances have, have largely been instances uh, like, and you, there are a whole bunch of them, where the bank has colluded with criminals, right? So there's there's there was a huge scandal with HM, you're grinning. Um, there's a huge scandal with HSBC, uh, where HSBC basically participated in laundering money for um, Mexican drug cartels. Um, this is, it's not the only instance, it's a major instance, and it re- resulted in a deferred prosecution agreement whereby um, HSBC had, um, well, a, a limited amount of time to get its act together and then was given an extension to continue to get its act together. Um, but mostly where that happens is it's, it's active, it's purposive, it's not accidental. And it's worse in that way, right? Like, it's worse because... I mean, it's worse for a whole bunch of, like, you know, reasons like breach of the public trust and, you know, active criminal activity by a financial institution. Um, but also, like, the the scale of the money that's being laundered is far more significant than, you know, somebody who, for whatever reason, thinks that a transaction is okay and lets it in because it's likely to be a smaller amount. Um, the real significant problems are problems of active criminal engagement by financial institutions. And, you know, in those cases, whether there is or ought to be or was a law, it doesn't matter. They're doing it right. The law is no object. So, again, I'm not convinced of the value of, of this system of reporting. Yeah, it seems like there's laws in place to like mandate reporting, but then anything that would be reported doesn't really matter anyway. And would just be getting like small potatoes while simultaneously banks are like we talked about sometimes brazenly like <laughs> doing this stuff. And then that, then you would expect like, uh, like the bank to report its own behavior, like under the letter of the law, but obviously that's insane and would never happen. <laughs> right. It's like like in any other institution that has laws governing, like if you're doing bad stuff, you guys should report, but schools don't do that. Hospitals don't, the police don't. And then we're shocked. Like you're supposed to be the good guys. Why didn't you? It's frustrating to me too. I think really what the system does is it gives us a measure of confidence or a measure of security in our society. So look, we have this 
whole apparatus that's set up. We are asking notaries, public and casinos and luxury dealers of various things and financial institutions and credit unions and in insurance and, 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 uh, to report what they think is suspicious. And it comes to the government and then the police can come and they can go to FinTrack and they can say, Hey, do you have information on Vanessa Yafola? We think she's a launderer. And then FinTrack can say, yes, one time this actually happened. One time she had to do repairs on her home and she came and she took out $10,000 and the bank was very suspicious and asked her a bunch of questions. And she, who should know, have known better, to be honest, uh, said to the bank employee, oh, actually, oh, are you asking me this because of, of the FinTrack requirements? Are you, do you have a suspicious transaction report that you're interested in filling out? Oh, how do I know about this? Well, I used to work uh, at this bank. And also um, my PhD thesis is on this topic. So I can tell you that what I'm doing is strictly above board. I'm just taking this money out to pay a contractor. And I could literally see the person's eyes glaze with fear <laughs> and click submit, right? But that would all go into a report. And then the police could request that of me, right? Or of FinTrack about me. Um, like, and that makes people feel safe. That makes people feel, feel good. Like we're doing something because just the fact that we're doing something is a thing. It's a multi-million dollar something that we have to do just on the public fund funds end, right? Like it's, I think the, it's probably what twenty million dollars. I think that it costs to run FinTrack alone, but that's not the man hours in all of those industries. That's not the training hours that go in. That's not the specific apparatuses that have been set up on the back end in financial institutions, right? Like this is a hugely expensive enterprise. There aren't that many prosecutions in Canada. There aren't that many prosecutions for either money laundering or terrorist financing. And like, um, I remember the stat that I used in my dissertation, I think between 2006 and 2011, the public prosecution service of Canada had, I think one prosecution for terrorist financing. And it was under 10, I think, convictions for money laundering in a five-year period. Like, I, I'm not convinced of the, that that's an effective use of public funds. And, and I'm, I'm not like, an, I'm not instrumentalist or, you know, hugely sort of a, a cost-benefit analysis kind of person. But when you think about the sheer volume of work that goes on, right now there are people sitting in offices every day who are looking to see, sifting through transactions. Where are the prosecutions? What's the public payoff? Yeah, it's like ditch digging, right? Like the the system has so much money to hire people, but then there's only so many like actually useful jobs that I kind of wonder, like with, with at least in the States with the explosion in like the militarization of the police and like the rationality of the system and whatever, like how many jobs like this exist that are really just like ditch diggers, right? Like, Here's here's sixty grand a year to enter data, and you get a a, a lanyard, a really cool lanyard, and two weeks vacay. <laughs> yep, and you don't really actually do anything. I hate to be a cynic, but like I mean, I, I guess from uh, the perspective of keeping people employed, it's useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, I mean, I I get to have that conversation with my students next week about like. And I mentioned it before too. Like we we're in the business of trying to make ourselves not exist anymore, and they didn't really <laughs> get that. 
Um, I wish I could be in the room where, where like legislators were talking about like we need to go to the casinos and tell the casinos they have to report this behavior because who if you can't trust the casinos, <laughs> who, who can you trust? And <laughs> I want to be there. I wish I could be there from like the genesis of that idea to like when they drew straws <laughs> to go to go make the rounds to the casinos and make the calls and drop off the. The I'm sure there's probably like a thick binder <laughs> of, of procedures to follow, <laughs> and and go to this institution that is like the backbone of organized crime, <laughs> and be like, "Hey, boys." <laughs> But it also tells there you, you something too about like the social priorities around like the kinds of crimes that we that we really care about. You are not going to catch like like the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers types of offenders at a casino. Like you're just not. Like it's not happening. Like, the worst terrorists in the world. <laughs> like their first day out of terrorism school, go and blow their paycheck at the casino. <laughs> Right? Like, hey, how do we, we should switch these serial numbers. They're yeah. all sequential. Let's give them, let's take them to the casino. I, I, I can't imagine how this sort of really high scale, like high level lucrative financial criminals are, are going to be caught in this kind of a system. <laughs> Think about that. I mean, you know, so even, I don't even think Fredo would be caught in this kind it's of a system. It's so ridiculous. Oh, I I should tell you, I have foolishly gone back to school. Um, I am uh, in a master's program in creative writing right now. And so I'm taking notes just for like my own benefit for this. But like, there's a story here. <laughs> and so when I turn this into a script, I will credit you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm taking a screenwriting class right now for fun. So oh, yeah? Like, we should collaborate. I Yeah, I specialize in screenwriting. So my, my new thesis is a, I have to do a 70-minute screenplay. Um, and yeah. it gets a table reading next January. So, yeah. Intense. So this is a plug for the Wilkes University Graduate Creative Writing Program. Uh, it's awesome. Best decision I ever made is to go into this. <laughs> but this is absurd, right? Like, the 19-year-old kid, like staring daggers through the subway guy. <laughs> I can then, show you a picture of 19-year-old me, like, and she is... Oh, boy. I mean, she's got, like, a drink in one hand, and she's got red lipstick on, and she's got, like, her arms around her friends, and she's, like... she's She is a happy girl who's living her life, and she is in no way knowledgeable at all. And I became a professor. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, 19 year old me also was not going to ever become a professor. And, right. and here we are. So this is a good lesson. Like if any of if any students are listening to this who think that your professors are like always super what's the serious? word? I was gonna say driven, but serious also works. And then here we are. So Jokes right? on you guys. Surprise! <laughs> but, like, the person who stands in front of you in, like, heels and nylons two days a week for 75 minutes with, like, full makeup and very nicely straightened hair was probably just like you 20 years ago. Yep. <laughs> Didn't know a thing at all about the things she would spend the rest of her life working on. 
Hey, Andy Wilczak again. So, I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come online, come on the show, and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenure Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts, and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology-based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So, again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.